Well, thank you, choir. Good to have Michael with us again, and uh, glad that he can be with us uh, today. And for those of you that know him, you'd be sure to let him know how good it is to see him before you, before you get out of here today. Well, it is good to see you as well. We uh, have been seeing the Lord really do great things through this series. We've been in this series called Burning Questions uh, now for a number of, uh, of weeks, just about two months exactly now, actually. Uh, according to plan, at least, we've got about two more Sundays left after uh, after today, and then we'll be done with this series completely. And so hopefully it's been beneficial for you. I know it has been for me. It's been a real challenge. It sharpened edges for me in my own Christian walk, in my own, uh, my own marriage, my own family life. And uh, hopefully it's been the same for you as well. Well, it's called Burning Questions for a reason. If you're new here, if this is your first Sunday, uh, back a few weeks ago, about two and a half, three months ago actually now, I guess, we opened up to our uh, folks that are part of our church family, those that are attending, an opportunity to ask questions. We call them burning questions because really these are the questions that hopefully have been burning in the hearts, burning in the minds of those uh, concerning marriage and relationships specifically. And these are questions that you wouldn't raise your hand to ask publicly, but you would love to know what the Bible says on these certain questions. And so we've had great questions that have been turned in, a lot of questions. No way I can deal with every one of them here publicly you know, as a part of a message, but we pulled out the ones that I felt were more pertinent, the ones that were asked more uh, more often than others. And so that's what we've been dealing with, burning questions and answering them from a biblical perspective, seeing what the Bible says about this topic. Now, there have been, there have been some difficult ones, to, to uh, not so much to preach, but maybe to hear, because anytime we open God's Word and anytime we look to see what God wants for us, there are times that we are, we are confronted with our own sinfulness. We are confronted with the, uh, the harsh reality of how far we have to go to be just like Christ. And whenever we come to those places where maybe for you, you've had some times where on a Sunday morning, it's been a squirming time where on the inside, you've been really doing battle with yourself or doing battle with God or with the truth of his word. Just understand that anytime God confronts those areas of our lives that are difficult for us to address, he does it because he loves us. He does it because he wants to set us free. He does it because he has something better for us. And so this morning, as we look in God's word, hopefully for you, it will be the same as well this morning. We're going to look at another difficult topic, a topic that was addressed through some of the questions that came in. I'll just pull really one of them here in just a second, but the topic we're going to look at this morning is the topic of adultery. I don't have a fancy title for you. We're just going to deal with a couple of the questions that were turned in, sift through Scripture, and address some, uh, some issues that come up as we look at that. So let's look at the first burning question that we'll look at. The next one will we'll come up at really at the end. It's a very simple question. Discuss the definition of adultery. Now, whenever you look at that particular question, it is very obvious that that you could go a thousand different directions with that. In other words, there is a spiritual component to adultery. Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 tells us that to look at a woman with lust in her heart is adultery. And so there's that spiritual component, that spiritual adultery. If you've ever read the book of Hosea in the Old Testament, man, I really recommend reading through that book. It is an Old Testament book. It may be a little tougher for some to read, but it reads almost like a novel, even though every bit of it is absolutely true. If you read through the book of Hosea, you see God is dealing in a very dramatic way through a couple of specific people. He's dealing with the spiritual adultery of his own people. And there are times where we commit spiritual adultery against God. We chase after things other than God and we replace him as the central focus of our lives. So there's that emotional aspect of adultery. There is the, the, uh, the spiritual aspect of adultery, even adultery between us and God, uh, as we'll see later in this message. But what we're going to look at this morning, I think, is just the obvious really the obvious definition or the obvious context of adultery, and that is whenever there is a sexual involvement between two people, one of whom is married. And for that person, it is the act of adultery. So we can take the question down off the screen. That's what we're really looking at this morning. And here, here's what I understand. It's much like last week when we dealt with the topic of pornography. I understand there are two groups of people here. Whether you have a relationship with God or whether you don't, there are two groups of people. There are those who have 
actually three groups. There are those who are, who are considering adultery or you're on the very verge of adultery. That person in your workplace seems to look better and better because things at home seem to get worse and worse. Or maybe you're a single person and you've met someone who just happens to be married and uh, you, you really don't see any issue with pursuing something with them and you get a little bit further and further and further and you're on the very verge of committing adultery. There's that person that I'm speaking to this morning who's on the very verge and what I want to do is to absolutely scare the life out of you and the Bible does a very good job of that. To be honest, I want to scare the life out of every single one of us here because when we get to the end of this message and we look at the takeaway, the one big idea, the one key point we're going to look at, it's going to apply to every single person here. Doesn't even matter if Billy Graham happened to slip in somewhere a few minutes ago. It's going to apply to him as well. And so for us, we have to understand that whenever we get close to that line and we get close to, to, to stepping over that line and, and, and committing adultery, we, the Bible has some very, very strong things to say. So that's one category. But then there's the category of people who, uh, who have committed adultery. And you've come through that. And you, if you could somehow step back in time and redo the choices you've made, you would do things much, much differently. And you don't need as much of a, here are the guardrails, here's the truth, here's how God views adultery. You need the restoration, you need the forgiveness, and you need the healing that God can provide. We're going to look at that here in just a little bit. And then there's the third group of those who are, uh, what you would say, the, the innocent party, the one who is married to one who committed adultery, and your heart has a unique set of needs and a unique set of hurts, and you need healing in a unique way. And so we're going to look the best we can in just the small amount of time that we have. We're going to try to look at those, those aspects of adultery and what the Bible has to say about it. I would say that there is perhaps no greater blow to the heart of marriage than adultery. Having to face the ramifications, the effects of adultery, because what it does is it cuts at the heart of what marriage is. It takes uh, uh, the heart of the innocent spouse and it, it damages the self-worth. It grinds them into just about nothingness. It, it not only damages the self-worth of the person who was the innocent party, but it also ultimately ends up uh, revealing itself as the ultimate deception for the one who commits adultery. That it ends up not being what they had envisioned, not being what they thought it would be. And their heart is left deceived. Their heart is left many times broken at times. There is a tremendous cost that comes with a choice to commit adultery. The cost individually, the cost spiritually, the, the, the cost collectively to the families that are affected, the families that are involved. The cost could not be higher. There is no greater damage done to the heart of a marriage than the choice to commit adultery. It is worse than facing bankruptcy, worse than facing the loss of a child, worse than fa- facing the loss of a job. Virtually every scenario you could paint adultery strikes deeper and it strikes harder than any of those things that you could ever face. The very first week of this series, we looked at the foundation of marriage and the takeaway, the big idea from that day was that, uh, one of the big ideas was that marriage is a covenant, not a contract. From God's perspective, from a biblical perspective, from our perspective, we have to come into this thing seeing marriage as a covenant. It is a binding agreement between you and your spouse It is a binding agreement between you and between God. It is that serious. That's why the Bible says some of the strong things that it does about marriage is because God sees it as a covenant. God sees it as a binding agreement. It is not a contract that we just back out of and we pay the cost that's extra. We we don't back out of that contract as though we broke a lease on a car or broke a lease on on an apartment or a rental unit. We, We don't deal with marriage as a contract. We deal with it as a covenant. So this morning we see, even from the very first week of marriage as a covenant, that it ties into the effects of adultery. And let me just say this, 
there are going to be some questions that are going to come out of this message that hopefully we'll deal with in two weeks. In two weeks, the very last message of this, of this series, we're going to look at the topic of divorce. Had numerous questions that came in about divorce. What does the Bible say about divorce? What do certain verses mean as they apply to the topic of divorce? And so much of what we're going to look at this morning, we're going to uh, um, continue, so to speak, in two weeks when we look at what Scripture says about divorce. But I want to scare you today. I want to scare you senseless today, and myself as well. I want to rattle your cage, and I want each of us to leave here knowing that the stakes have never been higher, that the enemy has never been more venomous as he attacks marriages, and that it's this aspect many, many times that ultimately he uses to bring about damage that we can never even imagine. Been in pastoral ministry 10 years, been in ministry for 22 years now. And I would say that especially as a pastor over the scope of these 10 years that I have, I have counseled from a pastoral perspective many, many, many couples and individuals that have walked through this issue from our community, from within our church. I've seen the look on the face of a wife with tears and a heart that is broken as she's had to walk through the valley of dealing with a spouse who committed adultery against her. I've dealt with those men and women alike who have made the decision to commit adultery and to see that look in their face, that what have I done look. And to know that there's not a lot that you can do to fix things anytime soon. I've seen the devastation on families torn apart because one spouse chose to step out of the confines of God's parameters to chase a pasture that God never intended. I've seen the heartache on the face of children. I've had conversations that perhaps were the absolute most intense conversations that I've ever had in ministry centered around the effects of adultery. I've been all but hung up on in trying to talk with people in regards to putting up safeguards so that they would not continue in that, in that choice. I've had confrontation simply by those who were immersed in the choice to be unfaithful to their spouse and were choosing to do nothing about it. Here's the danger of adultery. One of the dangers is that our culture sensationalizes it to such a degree on daytime television, talk shows, sitcoms, movies today, our culture sensationalizes it to the point to where whenever you look at adultery from a worldly human pers uh, uh, perspective outside the confines of God's Word, there are many who choose to paint a picture of adultery as though it is an exciting journey, it is an endeavor, it is something that people are, are uh, uh, deserve for themselves. And the picture of adultery that the world paints could not be further from the picture that Scripture paints. And what happens is, is that the enemy, as we looked at last week, always brings a counterfeit, God has the ideal for marriage. He paints it clearly in his word. Faithfulness is a part of that ideal. And what we see is, is that the enemy comes with his counterfeit and he tosses that lure out there and he says, hey, what you're lacking in your marriage, you could have here in this relationship. Whether it's that person in the office, whether that's person in another city as you travel out of town, whether that's someone on the other side of a chat room, regardless of what it may be, the enemy says you can have what you desire, what you long for, what you're lacking, and what you deserve, by the way, if you only seek it and pursue it in the life and relationship with this other person. And it's extremely 
deceiving because the culture almost applauds. I've seen even in a public forum before, I've seen someone flaunt their decision to be, uh, to be in the midst of, a, of, a, of an adulterous relationship and to see friends condone it and applaud it and to share their happiness for them. And it's where the culture is. So far from the parameters that we see in God's Word. Ron Herod wrote a book a number of years ago about marriage. Listen to what he says. He says, in our society, a call for marital fidelity is like a solitary voice crying in today's sexual wilderness. And I couldn't agree more. We take a stand for faithfulness in marriage, and you will be the lone voice in a wilderness in this world. So what does Scripture say? Let's take some time to walk through it. Turn with me, if you will, to the book of Proverbs, chapter 5. Proverbs, chapter 5. When we're done here today, I will have left, left verses out. It's going to happen. And I know you will be tempted to come and say, Brooks, you should have gone with this verse or that passage, and I will agree with you because there are many in Scripture that we could turn to. My time is limited. I could stand and read Scripture for 30 minutes with no exposition, and uh, I've just chosen not to do that. We're going to try to hit the passages that are most pertinent this morning, most applicable for you, and hopefully God will use it in your life uh, in whatever way that's needed. Exodus chapter 20, by the way, verse 14, as part of the Ten Commandments, God says, Thou shalt not commit adultery. And so from the very earliest that we read of in Scripture practically, we see that adultery is dealt with. God gives the command to his people, thou shalt not commit adultery. We've all heard it for years. We know that it's there in the Ten Commandments. In fact, even going back to Genesis chapter 2, you don't turn there, but going back to Genesis 2, we're reminded that early on, the second chapter of Scripture, God uh, deals with Adam and Eve, and he, he gives them the parameters. He gives them the command that they are to leave their father and mother and to hold fast or to cling or to cleave to one another, and that the two shall become one flesh. And whenever you look at adultery, what it does is it strikes at the heart of that early command that God gave, that the husband and wife are to cleave or to cling to or to hold fast to one another. Adultery breaks that bond. It breaks that covenant. But of all the passages in Scripture, I believe there may be no more clear in painting the dangers and the cost of adultery than what we begin to read of here in Proverbs 5, Proverbs 6, and Proverbs 7. And so let's just dive in here. Proverbs chapter 5. I'm going to try to move through this passage somewhat slowly. I've only got uh, 15, 20 minutes or so. But let's just begin. Proverbs chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. It says, My son, give attention to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may observe discretion and your lips may reserve knowledge. For the lips of an adulteress drip honey and smoother than oil is her speech. Let me just pause there for a moment. You'll notice there the first two verses of that passage talk about the need for wisdom, the need for understanding, the need for discretion. Whenever you see the choice made for a person to commit adultery, it is always lacking those qualities of discretion, understanding, and wisdom. There is no person of understanding, no person of wisdom, no person of discretion who is applying those three components at that very moment who chose to commit adultery. And so if you're at a place where God's word is becoming less and less important, if you're at a place where the passion that you have for God's word is becoming less and less intense, if it is rare that you open God's word outside of a Sunday, and if there is inconsistency even there with your attendance and your uh, uh, attention to sitting under the teaching, the preaching of God's word, if God's word and if a passion for Christ and if a devoted walk with God is becoming less and less and less of what it used to be, used to be, be very, very careful because more than once in Proverbs, it ties the choice to commit adultery and the lure and the attraction of the adulterous person with a, a failure to, de, to uh, apply discretion and wisdom and understanding to their life. 
It says in verse 3 that the lips of an adulteress drip honey. You don't have to turn here, but just listen to this. It's in the, the Song of Solomon, the Song of Songs. Listen to what it says in Song of Solomon chapter 4, verse 11. Your lips, my bride, drip honey. And we won't camp there for very long. The context of that is that this is being spoken between husband and wife. Your lips drip honey. But in Proverbs chapter 5, it's saying that the lips of an adulteress drip honey. See, there is a, and here's the way the enemy operates, is that he begins to blur the lines between faithfulness to one's spouse and desire for one who is not our spouse. Let's move on. Verse 4. It says, in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lay hold of Sheol, which is an Old Testament Hebrew word that references the grave. So, Brooks, I've known countless people that have committed adultery that didn't die. That's not what it's speaking about. Her feet go down to death. It will be the death of everything you cherish if you choose to commit adultery. And the scripture bears witness of that. I agree with Chuck Swindoll. Here's what Chuck Swindoll says. One of the greatest things you can do to guard against the committing of adultery is to consistently review and to rehearse the consequences that will come. If you just consistently review and rehearse the consequences that will come, if you take one moment of passion and a lack of wisdom and discretion and understanding and you chase after somebody who is not your spouse, and if you consistently rehearse those consequences and keep them fresh in your mind, that in itself will be a very, very, very strong guardrail against taking that step at all. Here's what it will cost me if I choose to commit adultery just once. And this is just a little bit of it. I will have the very, very difficult conversation with my wife that I would pay as much money as I possibly could pay to not have to have. And I ought to have to sit and look into the eyes of my precious wife that I have committed my life to. And I would have to see on that spot her heart break as I share what I would have done. And after that conversation is over, I would have to sit down with my seven-year-old Hannah, and I would have to sit down with my five-year-old Drew, and I would have to tell them why very possibly marriage as they've known it and family life as they've known it will be no more. And I will have to share with them why they won't be able to come after school and play in my office because Daddy won't be working there anymore. And I will have to have the conversation with my mom who raised me not to live that way, and I will have to see her heart perhaps break as I share with her, if I'm man enough, what I had done and why I had done it. I would have to stand before our personnel team if I was not chicken enough, and I would have to tell them what I had done and hear the words that I was no longer able to serve here in the capacity of pastor or in whatever capacity that I had served before. I would have to stand before you as a church family, as a congregation, and I would have to, if I had the heart and if I was a man enough to even do it, and I probably wouldn't be, and I would have to look at the shock and the amazement that one man who had stood here for 10 years to preach the gospel and to set the bar as high as I possibly could, though I confess my humanity, though I confess my weaknesses and how far I've got to go, I would have to see the absolute utter astonishment that I could say the things I've said for 10 years and make a choice such as that. That would be a tremendous cost in itself. I would lose my job, I would lose my marriage, I would lose my family very likely as I know it. I would have a judge tell me when I could see my kids again very possibly. I would have to ultimately see my whole life crumble and change right there before my very eyes. I wouldn't be able to walk through any public place on this island without having to avoid the stares and possibly the sneakers of people who would say, there goes just another one of those preachers, just like all the others, who can't live in a way that matches the words he speaks. And I would have to watch as it all explodes on Facebook. And I would have to hear about the comments from friends. And I would have people shun me 
And I would see the news article in the newspaper, and the list goes on and on and on and on and on would be the, the, the ultimate cost and the ramifications if I made the choice just one single time to do that. And it's not much different than for you. You say, I've never known anybody who died because they made that choice. It is the death of everything you cherish. And the only way to avoid it is to become so hard-hearted and to be changed so much as a person that those things just don't bother you anymore. Proverbs 5, look down. Verse 6. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways are unstable. She does not know it. Speaking of the adulteress. By the way, Proverbs is right. This is written largely from King Solomon to his son. He's not picking on women. He's not saying only women do this. Everything he says can be flip-flopped. It's just the context in which he wrote it. Hey, that, that, that offending partner that may, you may think looks so good, she's, she or he are not thinking about your life. They're not even thinking about their own life. <laughs> Why are they going to look out for yours? Verse 7. Now then, my sons, listen to me. Do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your heart far from her and do not go near the door of her house. Or you will give your vigor to others and your years to the cruel one. Strangers will be filled with your strength. Your hard-earned goods will go to the house of an alien. And you groan at, the end of, at your latter end when your flesh and your body are consumed. And you say, how I have hated instruction in my heart, spurned reproof. I've not listened to the voice of my teachers nor inclined my ear to my instructors. I was almost in utter ruin in the midst of the assembly and the congregation. Solomon shifts gears here, verse 15, he becomes very practical. He says, drink water from your own cistern, fresh water from your own well. Should your springs be dispersed to broad streams of water in the streets, let them be yours alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed. Rejoice in the wife of your youth as a loving hind, as a graceful doe. Let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. For why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress and embrace the bosom of a foreigner? It's a practical plea going all the way back to the very beginning of Genesis chapter 2 when it says that a husband and a wife are to hold fast and to cleave and to cling and to become one flesh. It is pleading to, to, to drink of the fountain that is yours that God has given you. It is a plea for unity, a plea for oneness. Look at how he finishes the, this proverb, verse uh, 21. He says, For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. His own iniquities will capture the wicked, and he will be held with the cords of his sin. He will die for lack of instruction, and in the greatness of his folly, he will go astray. King David never knew the morning he woke up, captured in 2 Samuel chapter 11, that his life would change that day. It was an ordinary day. He had sent his troops out to war. It was the spring it was a time when he should have been there with his men at battle. But for this reason, for some reason, this day he had chosen to stay back. He walked out on the palace roof. Customary probably for him to do that. This particular evening, the Bible tells us in 2 Samuel 11, he happened to look and he saw on the rooftop nearby a woman. Her name was Bathsheba and she was bathing. We could discuss whether or not that was appropriate for her to do that. It doesn't play into the conversation. She was there. David had a choice. Does he look a second time or does he not? And he looked a second time. And it was a long look to the point to where he sent for his people, abusing his power, to call for her, and she came to him. 
David was not thinking about the Psalms he had written. He was not thinking about the times he had led his nation into battle and brought home the victory. He was not thinking about all the times that the children has sung its praises. He had not been thinking of all the times that God had rescued him and redeemed him from the pit of despair and discouragement and even death itself. David was not thinking about any of those things in that moment of passion with Bathsheba. In fact, he was not even thinking of God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says it's not the hatred of God that destroys us, but rather the forgetfulness of him. And in that moment, David forgot. The man described as the man after God's own heart, hero of the Old Testament, defeater of Goliath, king of Israel, who served in the golden years of Israelite history, if he could make a choice such as that, let me just say, it's a choice that any of us could make in an instant. Flip over with me, if you will, to the book of Psalms chapter 51. I want you to see something here. The Psalms become more alive when we understand the context in which they were written. Psalm 51, if you read your uninspired (laughs) addition there to the beginning of Psalm 51, your your Bible may have an explanation paragraph before chapter 51 begins. If it does, it'll explain to you that this Psalm, chapter 51, was written by David after he was confronted one year after the fact about his adultery with Bathsheba. Listen to, the, listen to the plea of David's heart one year after running from God. Verse 1 says, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. You see, he ran for a year, but he couldn't run from the memory of what he had done. He couldn't run from the truth of how his relationship with God had been damaged and how it had been affected because of the sin that he had committed. Verse 4, he says, Against you, you only I have sinned and done what's evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. David confronted his sin. What what does the person say? before they commit adultery. What are, what's some of the justifications that come whenever a person chooses to commit adultery? Uh, let, me just, let me just throw out a couple here real quickly. One of the justifications that's often said is that, is that God will forgive me. Hey, God will forgive me for this. I almost had somebody tell me that years ago, years ago, almost that same exact thing, God, God will forgive me. Hey, God will. He'll forgive you and he'll wash you clean. But it will only come, you will only experience that forgiveness, Christian, and that restoration when you come through a period of repentance, which doesn't just mean, oh, God, I'm sorry. It is a repentance and a brokenness. Repentance and brokenness. Steve Farrar describes repentance as the dry heaves of the soul. Now, I don't try to get too gross here. You ever had the dry heaves? (laughs) It is not a fun experience. It is whenever we come to the place, repentance, when we so are repulsed by our sin that it's as though we can't even control our reaction to it any further. We are repulsed and we abhor what we've done. 
in our sin. It will require coming to that point. And at that point, you will likely see the brokenness and the loss. Why? Because Proverbs already says that adultery will steal everything that we cherish. Yes, God will forgive. Yes, he will restore. We'll see that in just a moment. But it will require you coming to a place of such brokenness over your sin that God would desire that you just stay within the guardrails and not have to traverse that valley. God will forgive me. Yes, he will. But he won't always just simply take away the cost. Some will say there's nothing wrong with it. Co-workers are doing it. Read about it all over Facebook. <laughs> there's nothing wrong with it. Breaking the heart of your spouse, breaking the heart of your kids, losing the things that are precious to you, dishonoring the name of God, dragging the name of Christ and his sacrifice through the gutter. What exactly is right about that? Some would say our spouse, my spouse and I were not love anymore. Deserve this. <laughs> it's still a covenant. Scripture is still clear. The remedy for a fizzling of the love is not to go out and commit adultery. You've got to address the, the aspect of love. <laughs> Committing adultery is not the way to do that. And so Scripture paints a picture for us that is sobering. And I summarize it with this one simple principle, and I hope you'll jot this down. That we must live as though adultery is but one weak step away. You will benefit, and I will benefit, when we live as though adultery is but one weak step away. And listen, it is. Trust me, it is. Wrong circumstances, wrong person, wrong season of life, wrong mindset, wrong uh, uh, place in your relationship with God, and you could be the next person, but by God's grace, perhaps you haven't already. You could be the next person walking down that road. Next week, we're going to look very practically at some questions that came in, very pointed questions. What can I do to affair-proof my marriage? We're going to look practically next week. You're going to leave here today thinking, why didn't you give me more to help guard against this? Next week, we're going to do that, so don't miss it. If you can't be here, listen to it online. But next week, we're going to look at the practical things that we can do to affair-proof our marriage. Let me hit one more question, and then we're going to be done here in just a second. Principle, uh, or uh, uh, burning question number two. Let's bring that one up. How do I get over infidelity in my relationship? How do you know whether to try to fix things or to go our separate ways? How do I get over infidelity? This is an offended spouse, more than likely. How do, I get over my, uh, how do I get over infidelity? And how do you know whether to fix things or to go your separate ways? I'm going to drop back and punt on that. Two weeks, we're going to be looking at that, specifically what the Bible says about divorce and as it relates to adultery specifically. But let me just say this. As we look at this specific topic, that for us, we have to understand that according to God's word, Old Testament, New Testament alike, New Testament tells us to keep the marriage bed undefiled, that we must put guardrails up to guard ourselves because we are but one weak step away from the choice to commit adultery ourselves. And so we've got to hate it, we have to abhor it, we have to guard against it, we have to flee from it, and we have to be faithful to the God who saves us and to the spouse that he has given us. Turn with me as I close to the book of Psalm, chapter 32. If you ever want to read three chapters in progression, you can read 2 Samuel 11, the fall of David, you can read Psalm 51, 
David's confession one year later. And then you can read Psalm chapter 32. David's celebration of the forgiveness of God. Listen to what he says. I'll pull a portion of it out this morning. Psalm 32, verses 1 through 5. David writes, he says, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. You know, what he's talking about there is that God does not impute our sin towards us. That's what Christ has done. For the believer, your sin has been charged to. That's what the word impute means. It's been charged to the account of Jesus on the cross. And David recognizing his forgiveness that came, by the way, when he confessed his sin, when he owned it, and when he turned from it. David then understands the beauty of the forgiveness of God. Verse 2, how blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, he says to the Lord, and my iniquity I did not hide. In other words, I owned it. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. He confessed it. He turned from it. And then he says, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. You say, Brooks, I've, I've taken this step to commit adultery. I've, I've made that choice. Have I lost my salvation if, I, if I'm a believer? No, you haven't. Can I ever be restored? Yes, you can. But it comes when you own it comes when you confess it to the Lord and it comes when you turn from it when you abhor it with everything that's in you and you make the determination that by the power of God's spirit in me never again will I get even close to that again in my life you can be forgiven and it starts Christian with you are you willing to turn Are you willing to confess? Or are you willing to say, Lord, cleanse me? David would say in Psalm 51, restore the joy of my salvation. In verse 10 there, he says, create in me, O God, a clean heart. That word create is a Hebrew word, bara. You want to hear something interesting about that word create? It's the same Hebrew word, bara, that was used in Genesis 1 and 2 when God created the heavens and the earth. How did God create the heavens and the earth? Did he have anything in his hands that he used to create? No, he created them from nothing. Ex nihilo. He created from nothing the heavens and the earth. David says, God, in the same way, same word, bara, create in me from nothing. I have nothing to bring. I have no goodness in and of myself. I have nothing to add to this mix. God, please, would you just create in me a clean heart again? And God will do it. When you come to him on his terms, in confession and repentance, and if you don't know him, you can know him today. And you can know the forgiveness. And you can know the joy. And you can have the clear conscience to say, yes, I've fallen, but God has picked me up. And he's pulled me from the miry clay and he's set me in a firm place. And he's saved my soul and he's cleansed my life. And I'm not the person that I used to be by the grace of one to whom I owe everything. If you've never given your life to Christ, hey, you can do it today. And have the forgiveness that he died to give you. Let's pray. Lord, tough subjects, tough because these subjects many times intersect our lives. And we find that any time we step outside of your direction, your will, Lord, it brings cost. 
Lord, in the area of marital fidelity, faithfulness, perhaps the cost is, is the greatest outside of just rejecting Christ. Lord, it's there that hearts break, that families are sometimes just torn apart, multiple families. Deception never covers disobedience. Lord, there's nothing we can do to undo the past. We need a Savior who forgives the past, who doesn't hold it against us, and who can cleanse us and set us free. Lord, I pray for those today for whom this has been a tough, a tough message. It may have been years ago they made that choice. But Lord, I pray for them that they know your healing, your forgiveness, that you restore what the enemy has tried to steal himself. God, I pray that you restore marriage, family, walks with you. God, for those that have never made that choice, God, to, to commit adultery, Lord, may your word scare us so that we don't even want to consider it, get close to it. Lord, we don't want to trivialize it. We don't want to tell jokes about it. We don't want shows that sensationalize it. Lord, we don't even want anything to weaken the standard that we would set to be faithful to the one that you've given us as our spouse. And so, Lord, keep us clean. Keep us close to you. And, Lord, as we see next week, may we be faithful to put up safeguards in our lives to ensure that in our weak moment, that our response is not to do this, but to rather to run to you. So, Lord, bless whatever decisions are needed today. For those that don't know Christ, Lord, the, may they realize that the Savior has given himself for them, just for them. He died on a cross. He rose again from the grave. He stands ready and able, the only one in history, to forgive and to set a heart free. And so may those who don't know Jesus today choose as an act of their will to turn from their sin, to hate their sin, and to cry out to Jesus, to come and to invade and to take over their life and to forgive them and to set them free. So bless these decisions we ask, Lord. And be glorified in our choice to obey today. For it's in Jesus' name we ask. Amen.